0: You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, normal people, here we are at the end of this series, and oh man, we've covered a lot. So, hey listen, thanks for hanging in there. I've loved it. I hope you loved it too. But anyway, listen, we have a lot to cover in today's final episode, so let's get right into this. First, remember where we are in the story. The Israelites have been at Mount Sinai since chapter 19, which means uh, 21 of the 40 chapters of Exodus take place there, and they're on Mount Sinai for two reasons. The first is to receive the law, which we looked at in episode 5, and they'll receive a lot of laws from here on out. I mean, the book of Leviticus is the next book, uh, but that's a whole other issue and probably podcast series eventually. But the second reason they're on Mount Sinai is to receive instructions for building the place of worship, the tabernacle, which is a tent where the priests make sacrifices and offerings to God and other sorts of things, but you know, that's what worship basically was back then, sacrificing. And uh, the tabernacle is Israel's sacred space, unlike any other space, and this is where God's presence dwells among the Israelites. And later, when they're in the land, the Israelites under Solomon will build a temple. And that's a permanent place of worship, at least it's permanent until the Babylonians destroyed in 586 BC. But now that they're wandering in the desert and a portable sacred space, a worship center, well, that's obviously the way to go. You don't erect a permanent structure when you're wandering. So, the last 16 chapters of Exodus 25 to 40 are dominated by this tabernacle. And no matter how bored we might get reading this section, it's worth noticing that the Israelites thought it deserved a lot of space. And these 16 chapters fall into three parts. And I don't think there's a lot of debate about how to divide this whole section. But the first section is the instructions for building the tabernacle, and that's in chapters 25 to 31. And that's followed by what seems like an interruption to the story. And that's the rebellion in 32 to 34, the golden calf episode, which nearly led God to like nix the whole plan. And then the third is the actual building of the tabernacle in 35 to 40. So, let's just take all three of these sections and see what happens. So, you know, let's look first at the tabernacle and we might as well start with some historical issues that are raised by this episode. It's the kind of thing we do here in this podcast. Let's talk about historical issues and scholarship and things like that. So, uh, one thing is that scholars have had some questions about such an elaborate structure, portable or not, but such an elaborate structure in the wilderness. You know, for one thing, where did they get the building materials from, not to mention the precious metals? It seems this structure is too elaborate for a wilderness wandering people and so many scholars have concluded that the description of the tabernacle, that we find here in Exodus, is more fitting for the permanent structure, the temple. In other words, the description of the tabernacle seems like a description of the temple, but brought back into a much earlier period in the story. And we've seen this sort of thing in earlier episodes. For example, in episode 4, in Exodus chapter 15, the Song of Moses, well, in that song, the temple makes an appearance too. This is just part of the writing of this story. As we've said before, it's looking at a time gone by but written from a later point of view. Now, some scholars doubt that there ever was a tabernacle, that it was only a retrojection, as they say, of temple theology back into ancient times. And that's not surprising, as we've seen, the entire story of the Exodus has its share of historical problems. We looked at some of those in episode one, like the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, and a few other things. And the tabernacle doesn't escape that same kind of scholarly assessment. But just as some scholars say the Exodus never happened, others say, well, something happened, but we don't know exactly what. Well, in the same way that scholars say that, they say that also about the tabernacle, right? Some say there never was a tabernacle and others say, well, there was some sort of a portable sanctuary, but its description reflects a later reality. You know, the description of the tabernacle does have a lot in common with the description of other sanctuaries among some of Israel's ancient neighbors, Yay archeology. span But the question really is whether the description of the tabernacle is literally of a historical tabernacle or of the temple brought back into the past. And I'm not sure, really, if there's a way of ever coming to a firm historical conclusion on that question. I sort of doubt it. I'm just bringing it up because, again, that's part of what this podcast does. We're engaging biblical scholarship, and I'm sure you can guess that we're just skimming the surface on this issue like we do on many others that involve complex kinds of arguments and data and things like that. Another kind of historical question is raised by the fact that there is a second tent in Exodus, and it's called the Tent of Meeting. Now, on the one hand, throughout these chapters, we see this portable sanctuary referred to as the tabernacle or the Tent of Meeting. See, the two terms, they seem interchangeable in Exodus and, you know, who really cares anyway. But, here's why you care. In Exodus 33-7, the Tent of Meeting isn't at all an alternate name for the tabernacle. And here's what the verse says, listen and, and just pick up the vibe here of this verse. It goes like this, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. See, rather than a huge tent in the center of the camp where sacrifices are made, that's the tabernacle, the tent of meeting here, in this verse, seems small enough for Moses to set up whenever he wanted outside of the camp where he would talk to God. In fact, Joshua and anyone really who wanted to consult God could have access to it, not just priests. So here in chapter 33, the tent of meeting has a different purpose than the tabernacle and how do you, what the heck, how do you you explain that? Well, this is often explained Again, we don't know. At the end of the day, we can't say, you know, this is as sure as the sun rises in the morning. But this is often explained as a later writer, probably one with priestly connections, who combined the originally two separate tense into one. Which is what we see everywhere else in the tabernacle section, see this isn't simply a matter of terminology, but of two tents with different functions which which raises historical questions you know were there actually two, or was the less elaborate tent of meeting that we see in thirty three seven the original one, and the tabernacle got the main headline because priests edited the final form of the story? And on and on. Anyway, who knows, but 33-7 certainly complicates matters and these are the kinds of things that tend to occupy biblical scholars who mainly are interested in what happened. All right, so much for historical issues, now let's look a bit at the symbolism of the tabernacle and boy does it have symbolic value. See, earlier I used the term sacred space to describe the tabernacle, and it is indeed. And one way of glimpsing what that means, sacred space, is by seeing the tabernacle as a microcosm of creation. Of course, that sounds a bit abstract, but microcosm is a term used in biblical scholarship, and it means that the tabernacle is a microcosmos. Or another way of putting it, the tabernacle is a small, concrete down-to-earth version of the cosmos as a whole, the cosmos where God dwells. Or an even better way of putting it, and here I'm channeling my teacher John Levinson, Israel's sanctuary, whether it's the tabernacle or the temple, is, quote, an idealized cosmos. Just listen to this, it's an idealized cosmos, it's the world as it was meant to be a powerful piece of the testimony to God the Creator, a palace for the victorious king. A lot going on there, it's an idealized cosmos, the world as it was meant to be, a testimony to the Creator God, it's a palace for the victorious king. I mean, we'll unpack some of that at least as we continue here, but all that means is that if we look closely at this long, boring section about building a portable worship center in the wilderness. We will see some overlap between the description here of the tabernacle and God's act of creating the cosmos, because the tabernacle is a mini-cosmos. And I think that tells us a lot about what the ancient Israelites thought about the sanctuary, how vital it was for them theologically. Now, of course, this microcosm idea is just one angle on the tabernacle, but it's very important for grasping its significance and it's the one angle I want to focus on because it really gets at the big picture. And again, I keep saying this but I'm going to say it again, we, we're we just really skimming the surface. Actually, if you want to read more, I do recommend uh, my teacher John Levinson's book, Creation and the Persistence of Evil. Very readable but also very challenging, especially chapter seven where he discusses this microcosm idea in more detail. Okay, so, let's get really concrete here. How is the tabernacle a microcosm? Well, first, in Exodus twenty-five nine, Moses is commanded by God to build the tabernacle according to the, quote, pattern that God will give him. Well, what pattern is that? Oh, good question. But it's a pattern nonetheless, a heavenly pattern. See, you don't just throw up a tent for God to dwell in, it has to be just so. It has to reflect this higher divine reality, if God's going to dwell there, right? Okay, so, that's one aspect, just to sort of warm things up and get us going. Second, careful readers for centuries, Jewish readers, have noticed that the phrase, the Lord said to Moses, in this tabernacle section, it occurs seven times in these chapters 35, uh, 25 rather, to 31, right? Those chapters that lay out the commands for building the tabernacle, the Lord said to Moses. The first six times we read, the Lord said to Moses, concerned the building of the tabernacle and its various furnishings. While the seventh time we read, the Lord said to Moses, It concerns the command to keep the Sabbath. Now, it's not rocket science to see that the six commands concerning the building of the tabernacle, followed by a seventh day of rest, that all that parallels the six days where God built the cosmos, followed by a seventh day of rest and and those days are all preceded by and God said See that's it's a big parallel parallel the Lord said to Moses seven times and and then and God said seven times in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 Now just a side issue here which is interesting but not central building a sanctuary by a divine pattern and over seven days is actually not unique to Israel. The Sumerian king Gudea of Lagash, there is a name for all you eager homeschoolers who want to give your kids ancient names. The Sumerian king Gudea of Lagash did something similar around 2200 BCE, as did the Ugaritic gods to honor the god Baal. Ugaritic is a language of Ugarit, which is a an ancient culture from which we get a lot of information about Canaanite religion, and that's really important for understanding uh, parts of the Old Testament. And uh, anyway, the the Ugaritic gods did this in honor of their god Baal, B-A-A-L, and we get to know this god through the Old Testament. He's all over the place. I'm just throwing that in there to remind us that the Old Testament has a context in the ancient world, and these symbols didn't need to be unique for Israel in order to have meaning for the people. In fact, they might have more meaning if these symbols are not unique. See, for the ancient Israelites, the cosmos is God's sanctuary, built in six days, followed by rest. The tabernacle, likewise, is a mini version of that divine abode, built in six stages, followed by rest. Okay, a third issue concerning the tabernacle as a microcosm concerns the Ark of the Covenant, which, as many of you know, is, is a box, basically, overlaid with gold and and housed in that part of the tabernacle where the high priest enters the most holy place, or also known as the Holy of Holies. And this isn't explicit in Exodus, okay, but just, it's a very interesting possible connection here. Um, In in Psalms 80 verse 1 and 99 verse 1, for example, the ark, this ark of the covenant, is thought of as the footstool for God's throne. Now, if you remember the imagery of the ark, maybe you've seen pictures of it, it's a box, but there are two gold images of, of cherubim on top of the ark, and cherubim are, you know, fierce angels. They're not chubby little kids playing harps. So, and so, we read in the Old Testament that Yahweh, in these Psalms that I just mentioned, Yahweh is enthroned above or maybe between the cherubim, which means his feet are on the ark. Okay, interesting. Pete, can you get on with this and sort of be done with this? What, what are you trying to say? Well, in other texts, like in Isaiah sixty-six, one the earth itself is God's footstool. So, so which is it? Is God's footstool the ark, or is God's footstool the earth? And the answer is yes, both. See, God enthroned over the ark in the tabernacle is a, again, a mini version of God being enthroned in the heavens with the earth as his footstool. And that's a good example, I think, of how the tabernacle follows a heavenly pattern as we saw earlier. The fourth thing that helps us see the tabernacle as a microcosm of creation is the lampstand, which is in the holy place. That's not the most holy place, which is where the high priest is. The holy place is one room sort of removed from that and that's where the other priests may enter. And this also has these creation kinds of overtones. See the lampstand's function is to light the holy place from evening until morning, which On one level, it echoes God's presence with the Israelites as a pillar of fire by night as they left Egypt, and in that sense, not to get off track here, but the the smoke from the incense, which we read about in chapter 30, that might echo the pillar of cloud by day. But the lampstand has also been seen by biblical scholars as a symbol of the tree of life from the Garden of Eden, especially given that the lampstand arms are buds and branches. That's in 2522. The point being that entering the sanctuary is like entering and actually, let's say, returning to the Garden of Eden. That place from which Adam and Eve were banned by God and the way back is guarded by the two cherubim holding flaming swords, like those on the Ark of the Covenant. See, this symbolism is powerful. In the tabernacle, the curse is reversed and Eden is regained. At least Israel is given a glimpse of how it was all meant to be had things not gone so wrong in the first place. This is as close as you get back to Eden by being in the tabernacle. You know, not to go into hyperspeed here, but this imagery echoes throughout the Bible. The the sanctuary is a symbolic Garden of Eden. In fact, so is the land of Canaan, where God and God's people are to dwell together in faithfulness to each other. But as Adam is expelled from the Garden of Eden, Israel is expelled from the land. That's the exile. Yeah, so the sanctuary, Eden, Canaan, these are all sacred spaces and their symbolisms, they overlap beautifully. And if you're interested, you know, I draw that out a bit more in chapter four of uh, my book, The Evolution of Adam. Anyhow, the Eden imagery of the sanctuary symbolizes that, you know, when you enter it, the, the separation from God's immediate presence in paradise is reversed. The people are restored to full communion with God, at least in principle. And to enter the Christian story a bit, if I may, this is like how Jesus restores the people to full communion with God, and that's why it's pretty huge that the opening of John's Gospel calls Jesus the tabernacle. You know, when he says, when the author of John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, well, dwelt in Greek is literally tabernacled. The word became flesh, you know, Jesus, and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory, the glory that in the Old Testament resides in the sanctuary. And also Jesus, you know, claiming to be the temple in John chapter 2 when he's debating the Sadducees. The function of restoring communion, of re-entering Eden and being in God's presence well, in the gospel, this has moved from tents and buildings to God dwelling among us in human form. You know, it's said that John's gospel portrays Jesus in his most exalted form, and, you know, you ain't kidding. There's a lot of this stuff going on in John. Well, anyway, another microcosm element of the tabernacle, I think this is the fifth, is the bronze basin for washing, which is in the courtyard. We're moving further out now outside the holy place and outside the most holy place. And its purpose, this bronze basin, is for the priests to wash themselves before entering the tabernacle itself. It's also called the bronze sea, that's S-E-A. And some suggest that sea has some important cosmic overtones. In a number of creation myths in the ancient world, the, the watery chaos that's present at the dawn of creation is vanquished by the victor God and and echoes of that myth are certainly present in Genesis chapter 1 where God pushes back the deep, as this watery chaos is called in Genesis, and by pushing back this deep, this allows habitable space to appear like the sky and the earth. The chaotic, threatening deep hostile to life is defeated by Israel's God so that the earth and sky may be inhabited in that sense. This bronze sea is a symbol of this vanquished, chaotic, watery foe, put on full display in the courtyard of the sanctuary of this victorious God, Yahweh. You know, I have to say, I I like this angle on the wash basin. I wish that Exodus were explicit in drawing out this connection. It's not, but I'm throwing it out there too because, I mean, others talk about it and I think it's, it's really, really interesting. Okay, another possible connection, this is the sixth now, concerns the curtains that cover the most holy place. And they're made of blue, purple, and scarlet with cherubim, like worked into them it says, which probably means woven into them because they're curtains. Just looking up, (laughs) if you're in the most holy place, just looking up is a reminder that the tabernacle is sacred space, an earthly representation of God's dwelling where he sits in the heavens surrounded by adoring angels. Okay, three more quick points, if I may, about seeing the tabernacle as a microcosm. This is seven, eight, and nine. Uh, Seven, briefly, the dimensions of the tabernacle are very precise and geometric. Look, in any commentary or study Bibles will have a picture of the tabernacle. And some have observed that this very ordered nature of the tabernacle reflects the ordered nature of the cosmos in Genesis 1 where everything is carefully designed and executed. Eighth, in Exodus 31, 1-3, God calls these two dudes named Bezalel and Oholiab to manage the construction of the tabernacle, And, and these fellows are filled with God's Spirit. And among other things, also they're filled with wisdom, chokhmah in Hebrew, which is usually translated here as ability or skill. According to Proverbs 8, however, wisdom is with God at creation, just hang with this chain here that, that I'm trying to build, wisdom is with God at creation, in fact, wisdom itself or I should say wisdom herself, because she's personified as a woman in Proverbs. Wisdom herself isn't actually created, but just is
1: with God while God creates. Hi, everyone. My name is Edward Glasscock from Carrollton, Texas, and I'm part of the Producers Group here at The Bible for Normal People. This podcast has helped me grow in my faith by introducing me to better and healthier ways to look at God in Scripture. It's helped me realize that it's okay to hold on to faith while also having uncertainties. If you too have gotten something from this free podcast, please consider supporting Pete and Jared at patreon.com forward slash the Bible for Normal People. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a thanks for your support, there are lots of videos from Pete and Jared, a discussion group, and other rewards, so check it out. If you aren't able to support the show financially, don't worry. You can go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who truly helped the podcast improve and make it what it is today. Special thanks to Mike Mahevick, Mike, Michelle Casey, Shay Box, Ted Cole, Dustin Bauckham, Marilyn Johnson, and Kevin Hopper. The Bible for normal people couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast.
0: See if wisdom is with God at the creation of the cosmos, it's no wonder then that the building of the microcosm of creation likewise requires the presence of wisdom to pull it off. Okay, then finally, oh finally, in chapter 40, when the tabernacle is completed, we see echoes of Genesis once again, specifically of Genesis 131 to 24 this concludes this first creation story of Genesis chapter 1 Genesis 131 through 24 when the creation was completed so we see in Exodus 39 and Exodus uh, well specifically Exodus 3932 if you're taking notes and 4033 we read that the tabernacle was finished or it was completed the hebrew word is kalah which is also how the completion of the cosmos is described in Genesis 2-1. And also, the completion of the tabernacle was followed by a blessing from Moses, and we read this in Exodus 39, 42-43, just as the work of the creation, once completed, is followed by a blessing from God in Genesis 2-3. See, it really does seem like the tabernacle is a big deal. And it is. And in Christian theology, the function of the Old Testament sanctuaries, tabernacle and temple, are tied to Jesus. And it is in Christ that God's full presence dwells, as John says. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, Paul makes the rather unexpected claim that God's spirit dwells in the church, and Paul means they're both corporately, that's in 1 Corinthians 3, in other words, the church as a whole, the church in Corinth as a whole, and then the individuals that make it up, and that's 1 Corinthians 6. Being united with Christ, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, means that followers of Jesus also house the Spirit, so to speak. I could go on and on about that, but I would be remiss if we didn't take a few minutes uh, talking about an incident that nearly derailed everything, and that's the the Golden Calf episode in chapters 32-34, to which is placed, as we said before, right in between the instructions for building the tabernacle and the actual building of it. And I make that point because this act of rebellion, fashioning and then worshipping an idol, Okay, this happens after only the instructions for the tabernacle are given. Nothing's been built yet. And see, this incident raises the question of whether it's ever going to be built or whether God will simply be done with them. And of course, he isn't done with them. As you read this story in chapters 32 to 34, Moses does some damage control and he convinces God not to strike them down even though he really wants to. In fact, remember that Sabbath we've looked at this before Sabbath is the seventh, let's say segment of the previous section where the building instructions are given for the tabernacle and this ends in chapter 31 And then comes the golden calf story in 32 to 34. Well the next section, the first section that begins the section that talks about the actual building of the tabernacle well that begins in chapter 35 with The celebration of the Sabbath. You see, the action picks up after the rebellion where we were before the rebellion, before the golden calf episode. And I'm making a point of this because, first of all, it was hammered home to me in graduate school as a Gentile who doesn't pay attention to these kinds of things. But I'm making this point because, you know, some Christian interpreters have read the golden calf story as an indication of the failure of Judaism. See? This is where laws and commands get you. Judaism doesn't work. No sooner do they get a command that they just disobey it. Law is useless. It doesn't get you anywhere. But Israel's disobedience here doesn't derail the plan. That's the point. Despite the rebellion, the story picks up where it left off, in essence, without losing a beat. Hmm. I think that's pretty cool. The Sabbath, the day of rest, that's where we continue when the story of the building of the tabernacle commences. Now, some see the golden calf story as a retelling of the Adam story. This is very interesting, like it's a second fall. Disobedience and the threat of God's punishment are there in the Adam story and in the golden calf story. But whereas Adam is expelled from the land, this story, well, it continues, Unlike the story of Adam, these Israelites are not driven from God's presence even though God really wanted to do that. We'll see that in a second. The sanctuary will be built and they will be allowed to enter to God's presence. Okay, so you know, basically what happens then in this golden calf story? And here it is. Moses is up on the mountain getting the law written on the tablets, but God tells him to go down and pretty much get down there right away because the people are worshipping a calf. So, God wants to be done with them and basically, you know, kill them all. So, Moses convinces God to change his mind and not to go all medieval on the Israelites. But when Moses comes down with Joshua who's waiting part of the way down the mountain. When they come down, Moses sees what's going on and he smashes the tablets. Okay, that's chapter 32, and things are a bit touchy for the next two chapters, but Moses does damage control, which results in, in him carving out a new set of tablets, which leads to a renewal of the covenant between God and Israel. And then at the end, Moses' face is transformed from having been in God's presence. It's glowing, So much in fact, Moses has to veil his face when he is around the people. Bottom line, the crisis is averted and the story continues. Now, as you can imagine, there's a lot going on here in this section, but as I always say, I just want to focus on a few things. Things that I think are worth knowing that might add some oomph to your own reading of the story. And, And so, first, let's talk about the actual making of this golden calf. While Moses is away, the Israelites play. And so, they do what you would expect. Now, here's an important part. They do what you would expect people of the time to do, to build a symbolic representation of God's presence with them. Here, in the form of a calf, a very common symbol of the divine, because it indicates strength and fertility. Okay, but... Note what verse 4 says. This is the thing I want to get to here, verse 4 of chapter 32. The people look at the calf and they say, now listen to what they say. They look at the calf and they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Why say these are your gods when only one calf is made? Well, I'm glad you asked. See, this same phrase occurs later in the Bible. After Solomon, David's son. After Solomon dies, the nation of Israel tragically divides into two, the north and south. The south, Judah, is where Jerusalem and the temple are. The north now has no shrine and so their king, Jeroboam, he erects two golden calves at the northern and southern boundaries of the northern kingdom, specifically in the towns of Dan in the north and Bethel in the south. And after Jeroboam erects these calves, he says to the people, and this is in 1 Kings 12.28, he says, Behold, or here are, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. See, the plural makes sense for Jeroboam, but not for the golden calf episode. And this has led scholars to the rather common conclusion that these two stories are connected, and namely they're connected this way and again we've seen before what i'm about to say here the golden calf story was written with the jeroboam story in mind in other words the jeroboam incident of making two calves is which first kings seriously frowns upon it's written into the story from olden times the golden calf episode why well in order to thoroughly condemn Jeroboam's act. Now, well, that's a lot, which is <laughs> sort of dumped here. You know, basically, well, Jeroboam, well, he's as bad as those rebellious people back in Aaron's day, and just to solidify the connection, we're going to allude to Jeroboam's act when we edit the story of the golden calf with Moses and Aaron. So, as we've seen a number of times in this series, a story about a way back time was written in light of much later events. The Exodus story here and elsewhere reflects the period of Israel's monarchy, in this case the divided monarchy. And we're seeing here another factoid that sheds some light on when Exodus was written and why it looks the way that it does. Okay, so much for the making of the calf. Second, and briefly, I don't think that the Israelites here are worshipping another god as if they were saying a god of another nation rescued them from Egypt, that would make really no sense even with this heinous act of rebellion, that just makes no sense logically. Rather, they are worshipping their god Yahweh, but in a manner in which Yahweh does not want to be worshipped by means of a created idol. In other words, the Israelites are breaking the second commandment, don't make any idols, and not the first commandment, don't worship other gods. And we touched on this in an earlier episode, but to repeat, see the first commandment is about the exclusive worship of Yahweh. You shall have no other gods before me. The second is about how this Yahweh is to be worshipped, not the way the gods of other nations are worshipped with idols. And not to go too deep into this, but, well, there's some evidence from the ancient Near Eastern world that might help us here with this incident. It's possible that the calf does not represent specifically a god at all, but is something like a throne, or better, a platform that God stands on. And you see the difference. The calf maybe isn't actually representative of the God, but still the calf as a platform means that God is present there. Anyway, in other case, that's the big deal with this calf. It's claiming the divine presence when God isn't present. God is in his holy mountain. He's not there present with them. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, side note, and not to get overly political here, um, although the Bible's political, but see, as I'm speaking these words, uh, just recently a famous prosperity gospel preacher has been tagged as the president's spiritual advisor, Paula White. And she said, and maybe you've seen this viral video, but she said that wherever she is, God is also present. Where she stands is holy ground. I'm like, yeah, lady, read the Bible. You don't, you don't want to go there. You don't want to claim God's presence when that might not be the case especially personified in yourself, it's almost like you're a golden calf. <sighs> anyway, okay, third thing about the golden calf story. The Israelites are having a party down there, and this is no subdued worship service. A lot of loud singing, dancing, it's, it's a very bad idea for a few reasons apart from the golden calf itself. See, note that in verse 6, they sacrifice, and then they sit down to eat and drink. This is in chapter 32, verse 6. They sacrifice and then they sit down to eat and drink. Remember way back in 5.1, chapter 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh and they say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. See, the loud party with eating and drinking is a distorted version of that festival celebration. It's an alternate covenant meal, as some put it. God's deliverance of the Israelites was to have been celebrated by sacrifices and dining, but the Israelites have perverted it by jumping the gun. The problem here isn't the breaking of the second commandment, not just that, but also perverting this celebratory meal with God by invoking God's presence through a calf, but again, God is not present here in this meal. Furthermore, I, I think this is number four, though it's connected to the previous thing, the loud noise that's heard in the camp below is, as Moses said, the sound of revelers. And he says this in 32.18, as does the narrator back in verse 6. So, it appears twice. See, the issue here is that the Hebrew word, the word is tsachak, has sexual overtones. For example, um, in the story where Potiphar's wife, Accuses Joseph of trying to rape her in Genesis 39 14 and 17. That same word is used, though, really side note there in the Joseph story, it's typically translated more innocently like he insulted me. Anyway, the point is that to add fire to the flame, there seems to be something of an orgy going on, it's quite a mess. Alternate covenant meal, indeed. And so, this is where Moses smashes the tablets. And that's, this is the fifth point. And then he burns the calf, grinds it to powder, scatters it on the water, and makes the Israelites drink it, which is weird, but maybe not to them. See, his commentaries explain it. This seems to be some sort of a ritual. Pulverizing the calf and scattering it implies, first of all, total annihilation. And, you know, we actually have an example of this from ancient Ugarit, I mentioned them earlier, where the goddess, her name is Anat, A-N-A-T, she takes the god Mot, M-O-T, and burns him, pulverizes him, and scatters the dust in the field. Interesting. Okay, so, hold that thought. In Numbers 5, a lot of math here, folks, I'm sorry, but hey, it's the Bible, right? But in Numbers 512 to 31, we see a story, frankly, even weirder, where a woman suspected of adultery is made to drink a concoction of water and dust to determine her guilt or innocence. So, you're going to read that yourself if you want to. So, see, perhaps pulverizing the calf and making people drink it is for the purpose of totally annihilating this God, this false God, this idol and also for finding out who is responsible, who the guilty parties are. But, you know, sometimes the Bible's just not there when you need it. The text doesn't go at all into this or explain it. The writer just assumes that we get what's going on, and how rude of him not to know we'd be reading this millennia later with no idea of what is happening. Oh, well. A sixth point, everyone here is rather upset, not least of whom is God, and already before Moses comes down from the mountain, God tells Moses he intends to consume the lot of them by fire, and he's not going to eat them, but uh, by fire. At this point, Moses intervenes, and frankly, he calms God down, and he gets God to change God's mind. And Moses does this by appealing to the honor and shame code that dominates not only the Bible, but ancient and, and many modern cultures as well, though not so much our Western culture. Moses' argument amounts to this. But what will the Egyptians think of you if you just took us out to the wilderness only to kill us? You don't want to look bad, do you? You see, the argument worked, and Yahweh as we read quote changed his mind and this is in 32:14 now some translators have that Yahweh relented and the word could also mean that Yahweh repented but just you know it doesn't really matter if we take a step back we'll see that none of that word smithing makes a hill of beans worth of difference it's clear that God was angry and intended to do something and Moses talked him out of it and side issue i like these side issues side issue Reading the Old Testament stories means getting used to God's human like portrayal, anthropomorphisms as they're called. And a good place to see this human like God is early in Genesis, from the Adam and Eve story all the way through the Tower of Babel story. If you're ever interested, just read those stories and take note of everywhere God is described in not really God like ways, but more human like ways. Uh, Anyhow, Moses calms God down, but after Moses comes down from the mountain, he stands at the gate of the camp and challenges these Israelites. He goes, who is on the Lord's side? And what happens? Well, the sons of Levi, you know, the priestly tribe, they gathered around him. And just when you think maybe nothing super bad is going to happen after all, God says through Moses to tell these Levites to go throughout the camp killing people. And by day's end, the body count reaches 3,000. And then we don't read, you oh, gee, Levites, I, I know this was rough, but it had to be done, thanks for putting up with it. No, instead, and this is in thirty they're praised. Moses says, today you have ordained yourselves for service to God. See, they proved their worth to be priests, and in doing so, brought upon themselves a blessing. Now, we won't get into the whole divine violence issue here. It's too big, too complicated, and I've got a lot of blog posts on that if you're interested, and I talk about it a bit also early on in The Bible Tells Me So. But it's a real issue, you know, where people struggle with this stuff all the time. And, you know, in this context, I mean, we can sort of work with what we have here immediately. In this context, this violence can be, explained, sort of, within the logic of the story. See, it's a punishment that matches the seriousness of Israel's alternate covenant celebration. See, their act, in the logic of the story, their act was in effect an undoing of the entire Exodus story up to that point. Why do I say that? Well, remember that delightful pun we looked at in the first episode the Israelites were delivered from Egyptian slavery so that they could be slaves of God. That that word in Hebrew, as you no doubt remember because you're such astute listeners, that word in Hebrew is avad, and it means both to be enslaved and to worship. See, the purpose for which Israel was delivered from Egyptian avad, enslavement, is so that they will instead avad, their god Yahweh, which means to worship Yahweh. See, this is precisely what the golden calf story is about. It's not like an oopsie moment. It's Israel's false worship is in effect a potential erasure of this entire episode, because they're not worshiping God. Which is why God says to Moses basically, you know, step aside, let me consume them all in fire, and I'll start over again with you. And so, you know, three cheers for Moses for stepping in and saying, yeah, you see, Lord, the whole Exodus story is threatened by Israel's rebellion, but if you go through with this, you too, Yahweh, are putting the story at risk by putting into question the reputation you built up with the Egyptians. In other words, wiping out the Israelites won't solve the problem, but simply exacerbate it by wiping out God's reputation." Think about that. That's a very clever argument by Moses in this story. Well, anyway, listen, we need to bring this to a close. A lot more happens in these chapters, of course, but the long and short of it is that the new tablets are made, the covenant is renewed, and perhaps most importantly, the tabernacle project continues unhindered. And as we saw earlier, these chapters, 32 to 34, are framed by the Sabbath command at the end of chapter 31 and the Sabbath celebration beginning at the top of chapter 35. The action picks up right where it left off, crisis averted, and the tabernacle is completed, the portable sanctuary, the symbol of the Garden of Eden and of God's immediate presence with God's people. And all this sets the stage for Israel eventually entering Canaan, which is also seen as, as I said, sacred space where only purity can dwell and impure elements, like the Canaanites, are vomited out, as we read in Leviticus, for example, and where the temple would be erected under Solomon. But, you know can't do that. Now, all that is for perhaps another series one day, and I'll see about that. I've got a lot of other ideas, by the way, for my solo podcast for season four, but at this point, nothing is written on stone tablets. Ha ha. Hey folks, again, let's bring this to a close. Thank you for being with me during this series. I had tons of fun. I hope you did too, and that this has been helpful. And just as a reminder that we here at The Bible for Normal People are currently in a campaign to increase our patrons on Patreon, to help us fund some initiatives, the first of which is transcribing all of our podcast episodes, all three seasons going back and from here on out. People have been asking for that. And so, our goal is to hit 1,611 patrons by the end of 2019, right around the corner folks. Why 1,611? Well, because 1611, that's the year of the King James Bible, the Bible that Moses, Jesus, and Paul used was published. And please don't email me telling me that's not true because it's just a joke. Okay. You can become a patron for as little as $1 a month by going to patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. And folks, thanks again for your support and for downloading and listening to the series and, and for everything you do. So thanks so much and we'll see you next time. Sort of again. Sorry, after Israel died, after Solomon dies, I, my mouth is just so tired, David. I don't know why. I'm not sleeping. That's why. Okay. Which is why God says to Moses. Moses basically, I have to start that sentence again, David. I'm sorry. Which is why God says to Moses. I can't say the word Moses. I'll try it again. Chapters thirty-two to twenty. Uh, rather thirty-two. Oh gosh. Do you hear that? My cat is scratching the litter box. David, this is my life in a nutshell. Give it a second. Hey, cat, you done? Another couple seconds, couple seconds. Got a cat left. All right. (laughs) We're just about done. What a pain.